Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Spank that botass. It's time for another flat chat. And with two Grand Prix in the bag already, uh, it's looking like Red Bull have the upper hand. The latest issue of GP Racing magazine is now on the newsstands. And we have a man with a moustache and a mullet on the cover. Uh, Joining me to go back to the 1980s, perhaps to begin a fist fight with Patrick Swayze over a few cartons of Tia Maria outside the roadhouse. It's from South Australia, Mark Gallagher. Great to be joining you. And I have to uh, just warn the listeners that it is almost midnight at the time of recording and I've been at a very nice and very enjoyable dinner party where there was much Shiraz and uh, Riesling being shared by local winemakers. So I think my contribution to this podcast may be actually a huge improvement on normal. <laughs> well, let's move over and say hello to the only person with enough hair to grow a mullet, should he desire. But actually, do you know, if I put my mind to it, I could, but it would go through a terrible curly stage. Uh, live from uh, the, the Midlands, it's Matt Q. Hello, thank you for having me on the show, Codders. So, besides the moustache and the mullet, you'll probably be seeing more of Valtteri Bottas than you ever thought you wanted to in this month's uh, GP Racing. There's uh, an interesting and distinctive headline and opening image to accompany Oleg Karpov's exclusive no-holds-barred interview. And in the interest of full transparency, I should point out this was all Oleg's idea. Now, Matt, you got a sneak preview in Bahrain just as Oleg was freaking out about over whether he'd done the right thing. So you knew what was coming. Uh, Mark, what, what did you see, what did you think, rather, when you saw the uh, the, the spread? <laughs> the spread, so to speak. I have to say it's a very peachy interview. Um, the <laughs> the uh, I, I was delighted because, I mean, quite naturally, you know, we there's a tendency for everyone to focus on the championship winners and the race winners and uh, the number one drivers and the superstars and the top teams, and that's completely natural. You know, that, that's that's what you know so much of the focus is on, and yet. There are so many stories to be told up and down this grid. And when you take someone like Valtteri, who you know, was a teammate to Lewis Hamilton and was therefore in the hot seat in terms of seeing what Lewis has developed into, particularly in the post-Nico Rosberg phase of his career at Mercedes-Benz, you know, Valtteri's story personally is so interesting, but then also his his ability to observe what happened, you know, between him and Lewis and with working with Lewis and competing against Lewis as a teammate and all of the facets of that. I find that really interesting. I think, it's, you know, there's a, it's sort of part of my career that's tended to touch upon, you know, very successful drivers who ultimately were, you know, number two in their team. I mean, Eddie Irvine, 
was a lodger uh, for me when he was in my house when he was in junior formula. And obviously I kept in touch with Eddie when he ended up all the way through to being teammate to Michael Schumacher. And then obviously David Coulthard, you know, who I still work a lot with, David will tell you quite happily that it was his misfortune to arrive at the top of F1 as teammate to Mika Hakkinen and up against Michael Schumacher. So I think this, there's a story about drivers who are very capable and quick yet ultimately get to that point where there's a kind of a road to Damascus moment where the penny drops that there's someone else that's just that little bit quicker on a sustained basis. And I think that's been one, one of the interesting things about Valtteri and his journey. And and then subsequently, you know, his delight to get away from Mercedes and go to Alfa Romeo, where I mean, he can let his he can let his hair down quite literally uh, with the <laughs> with, with the with the mullet uh, that we have seen, and I think it's just great fun. You know, he's enjoying. I think he's enjoying himself. He's enjoying life. Um, he's been there, done it in terms of driving competitive race winning cars. Sixty seven was it sixty seven pole positions? I think he's had and uh, sixty seven podiums rather. And you know, ten victories. So he he knows what it's like to be in a top team, and he's now at a, in a different phase of his career. So I think you know, for Oleg to have focused in on this, and and for and quite honestly, for you to put him on the front cover in all his nakedness, is uh, it's just fantastic. It's fantastic. Realize well, he was wearing a hat. He was wearing a hat. Yeah, but it's uh, uh, it's. I think it's just really interesting. I I, I love getting into the sometimes the stories behind the headlines and sometimes the stories of the drivers behind you know the the front runners all the time and uh, Valtteri I think Valtteri's an incredibly you know impressive and capable uh, driver but rather like DC found out you know you get to sometimes you get to the pinnacle and find that there's one or two other guys around who just have that that edge and that's a difficult moment, and I think it's incredibly character-building. He also did say in the interview that he used to get quite fed up with the the Bottas 2.0 things, where he'd, you know he'd come back uh, to for a new season, he'd, he'd like have a beard or something, and people would say, "This is the new tough Valtteri Bottas," and there were people actually saying to him, "Do you know you should be a bit more ruthless, and you should be a bit more nasty," uh, and. He says in the interview, well, firstly, I don't want to be like that anyway. And secondly, um, he'd seen how another teammate doing that had played and it hadn't ended well. And thirdly, if you're going to be like that, you have to make damn sure that you get the championship over the line. Otherwise, you get fired and um, you don't get a job anywhere else. So for all those reasons, he just decided to carry on being uh, Valtteri Bottas. And I think that's brilliant, isn't it? Because we live in a world with so much uh, sort of falsehood and, and lack of authenticity. And I think with Valtteri, what you see is what you get. He's a damn good racing driver. And I mean, I, I first came into contact with him as a, as a competitor. I was a co-owner of Status Grand Prix when we were competing against him in GP3. And... You know, we saw what, and we, you know, we had a, a pretty rapid driver in Robert Wickens, and we saw what Valtteri was able to do. And obviously, he he sort of fairly rocketed through into that Williams drive. And and, and I, I think, you know, when we look back at the beginning of that hybrid era, but for all the Mercedes domination, one of the things that was quite pleasing was that, thanks to, in part to Mercedes' power, Williams were in the mix, uh, certainly in 2014, certainly less so in 2015. But, you know, Valtteri and Philippe Massa were in there. And I, I enjoyed watching that, you know, because obviously you had Lewis and Nico out there banging in the, the victories for Mercedes. But it was it was just, it was neat to see Williams back in the fray. You know, as I say, we don't need to overanalyze the reasons why they were there in, in those early days of the hybrid formula. But, you know, Valtteri was making the most of it. And... And I thought that was great. And then for him to get the nod uh, and be able to join Mercedes and replace, you know, Nico was uh, was a great thing. The the other thing which 
was also incredibly important, and it's, um, I think he doesn't get enough credit for this, was to go into a Mercedes team which had had a very, very unhappy time with the Nico Lewis uh, inter-team battle, inter-team rivalry. Um, you know, James Allison told me on a podcast a few years ago that it was just a downward spiral. You know, the, you ended up with a team divided and it just wasn't a happy time. And Mercedes really needed to put that behind them. And in signing Valtteri, you know, they got a very competitive driver, but one who was able to sit more easily with Lewis. And, I mean, he played the team game brilliantly and the team won, you know, five consecutive World Constructors Championships, you know, with Valtteri there. And, um, and Valtteri put in those Grand Prix wins when the opportunity arose. And yes... We all know we had some very poor performances, um, which tended to get a lot of comment around it. But the big picture to it was that in Valtteri and Lewis, Toto Wolff ended up with an incredibly harmonious team, which was able to to do everything that Mercedes required of them, really. And uh, and I mean, surely from a team point of view, that's that's what it's all about. So I think you know his role in that era shouldn't be underplayed because he did what was effectively required of him. And of course, he had a good relationship with Lewis and continues to do. So I think when, you know, I don't know, 20 or 30 years time when sport comes to look back on the Hamilton era, you know, I think Valtteri's role in that will be perhaps even better appreciated. And I, I know that he'll look back on everything he's achieved with great satisfaction and he's got more in him. You know, he's enjoying life at Alpha, he scored the lion's share of the championship points for the team uh, last season. Uh, it's obviously a much smaller team than Mercedes-Benz. Um, and I, for one, do hope that he hangs around not just long enough, but uh, effectively enough to to capture Audi's attention for when they come into Formula One. Because quite honestly, they couldn't wish to have a more experienced driver to perhaps guide them when, when they arrive into the sport in 2026. Well, how do you rate the chances of that happening, Matt? Because um, that's a good couple of years away before the the, the the real four rings appear on the nose of that car. Um, Valtteri's not, not getting any younger, but, uh, you know, the, the moustache and the mullet show there's still lead in the pencil yet, surely. Yeah, so well, he's thirty six now, so um, precedent says he can he can still do a job. And actually, when was it the Belgium Grand Prix last year when Audi did the press conference announcing their arrival? Butters certainly showed an, an interest in it and sticking around and being an F one around that time, which is obviously interesting. Not to give away every every aspect of Oleg's piece, but you know, uh, Bottas talking about seriously walking away from um, Formula One after the Mercedes era, so or his stint at Mercedes. To say now he's up for the Audi challenge, it'd be, it'd be brilliant. And uh, you have to wonder what Audi's options are. So in an ideal world, they'd have a young German. I don't think Mick Schumacher is that guiding light and Hulkenberg will probably be down and out of F1 for real absolutely definitely 100% by then and no more recalls and then you know as as we record this podcast McLaren have just announced a restructure with James Key out David Sanchez in turning the tide of McLaren is that enough you know to keep Lando Norris to stay will Charles Leclerc be so disenfranchised at Ferrari and then suddenly you know you're ticking off your contenders your realistic um, runners and riders for that Audi seat and Bottas you know with his experience with his you know, he'll be so deeply embedded in him will by then that he's he's a great shout to stick around. Uh, can I can I talk about off track Bottas, please? So the Finnish thing, which always annoys journalists, I think, that you when you do ask an eloquent question, well I think an eloquent question, then Kimi Raikkonen says yes or no. After a while that does sort of great when you do want to get a revealing answer to develop the narrative. And, and Bottas, I think, is selective with his words, but he's actually turned into a, a fantastic, fantastic paddock spokesperson. Uh, particularly, I think, you know, since since leaving some of the corporate bubble of Mercedes behind and having a bit more free reign. I don't just mean the, you know, skinny dipping in a river and, and doing, doing daft things with his hair. But, like, he, he's a great ambassador, the way he's, he's, he's talked about, you know, 
the FIA making dangerous decisions by banning tire blankets and and you know his his response to to the gagging act of by changing the international sporting code. He's actually become a real like paragon. Like it is he's he's not you know quite the the replacement for Sebastian Vettel in a sense he's going to appear on British uh, on, on Question Time and annihilate the standing Attorney General at the time and and just embarrass our political elite. But he, he's just come across so well as an eloquent person. The only slight disappointment is we're recording this straight after the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix when, you know, he was a massive advocate of this new sporting code isn't going to change. I'm still going to talk about all the key political issues and then decline to comment at all on, on Saudi Arabia. But his, his uh, after the, going back there a year after the missile strike, but I suppose his, his silence and sort of smiles and knowing glances said an awful lot without him verbally communicating as it were but I think that's something should be praised that for all his like quiet restrained demeanour that uh, that he's he's he picks his words carefully and they really bite when he does say something of, of great importance and I think that's a perhaps an underappreciated evolution of Bottas 4.0 as he would not like to <laughs> have it termed judging by this interview <laughs> but he probably wouldn't want to end up in jail, would he, really? Which seems to be the fate of anyone who dares criticise that regime. Anyway, moving swiftly on from uh, regimes. Uh, although um, Mark's column in next month's GP Racing does touch on the Aramco situation, but uh, we'll 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 leave that one hanging in the air for our listeners for, for next month. Um, elsewhere in this issue, uh, we look at the problems facing Ferrari in a... It's, it's a, quite an elegant piece of magazine craft, if I do say so myself. A two-part feature package. Roberto Kinkaro, the uh, Italian journalist and famous Matt Allwright. Uh... <laughs> it's, it's uncanny. Any, any listeners Google is it, uncanny. He's going to go and chase after people who have badly tarmac to drive. <laughs> <laughs> he does, you know. The, the um, every time I meet him, I, I, I you know, and I've known him for years. I still sort of have a double take. It's not, it's surely not Matt Allwright, the consumer champion. Is it? Is it so expensive to get into this media centre? Anyway, Roberto looks at why Mattia Bonotto got the heave ho as team principal from Ferrari last year, and what Frederic Vasseur has been doing since he slipped his feet under the desk uh, in at the end of January. Quite a lot as it seems. And Andrew Benson analyses the prospects for Charles Leclerc and Carlos Sainz, which, you know, we say probably the second best driver lineup in Formula One in terms of what you have to say that probably, um, well, most people would say Lewis Hamilton and George Russell is the strongest package with uh, Charles Leclerc and Carlos Sainz second. Uh, but driver for a team which doesn't want to be uh, second best and um, th- there's there's been a few movements in the Ferrari story since we closed for press uh, uh, and and I suppose let, let's let's roll in our, our discussion of the thing that's pinged into our inbox just before recording started of, of movements at McLaren so there's been talk of Laurent Mekis, uh wanting to leave uh, potentially for a job with Formula One, but Vassar blocking that. Uh, Mekis has certainly had his job title or remit changed. There's been word of Frederick Vassar and uh, Ferrari CEO Benedetto Vigna being at loggerheads over various things in terms of who controls what in the team. Uh, and, you know, last but not least, there was word that uh, David Sanchez had cleared his desk and was beginning gardening leave. And lo and behold, over at McLaren, technical director James Key has been given the heave-ho. There's a new structure, a new technical director and uh, a, a desk marked David Sanchez. So quite a lot to unpick, Matt. Now, uh, you've left Johnny Noble to put finger to keyboard and analyse this for Autosport. What do you make of this latest tranche of movements and also the the madness at Ferrari? It's pointed that McLaren have have given James Key the heave-ho to bring in David Sanchez because, you know, their their whole thing for, for ages has been, well, we just need to get the new wind tunnel and simulator online and then we're then we're cooking boys and girls. We're gonna be right at the front of the pack again. So for the, for them to make this call beforehand is is pretty bold. But let let obviously to, to focus on, on Ferrari, there's so many so many interesting things to pick out. First of all I want to having having taken a mick out of the way he looks, uh, uh praise uh Roberto because 
he I think I want listeners to understand how embedded he is in the all the goings on at Ferrari. He is he is so well connected in in that sphere that you know this side of Gazetta della Sport. He is if he says something about Ferrari, it's probably happening. So uh, the way he he stitches together the the piece that you have headlined right said Fred, uh, I imagine rubbing your hands together and laughing at your own uh, craftsmanship as you did that is uh, is well <laughs> worth reading. But for sort of, I think you know a couple of key things to pick out is. Um, Vassour falling up with top management is is really, supposedly, is really interesting because, you know, part of the reason Bonotto had to, well, was put into a corner where he resigned is because effectively he wasn't the new management's man. He wasn't their chosen one. You know, he would come in under Marchioni. And so did the management use the decline at the end of 22 as a reason to get rid of someone who they didn't want in the first place to bring in one of their own people or vice versa you know was he did he have to go because the results were so bad it just so happened that he wasn't their chosen one but Vasur is their chosen one you know from before Bonotto was even left it was talking about this is who uh, Benedetto and um, and John Elkman wanted in and now he's there so if he's already falling out with them already and he is their chosen one that that speaks of great instability quite which way around it is I don't know because if that's Vasseur coming in going guys this is a mess you know I need this this and this give me some autonomy uh, you know where I need to sort of stamp my own philosophy on that I don't know or if it's coming from the other way around that's you know that uh, that's that would be more troubling the life expectancy or the the the, the tenure of a Ferrari team principal is so short as it is that if the if the rumours are true then that is that is so soon on, on Vasseur's part. But he is, he is going in there and throwing his weight around. So, you know, uh, taking uh, replacing the head of strategy, restricting Laurent Mecky's role, which I don't think is quite the headline that's being made out to be. If he's not going anywhere, which, OK, I understand, uh, 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 you know, Vasseur saying he's not going anywhere is like, a, is like a football manager saying, I'm not going anywhere, I need to be flicked 24 hours later. <laughs> but if it's just a minimising of his role, where he's saying, you know, there's no need to do the FIA press conferences or, or all of that. Then fine, focus on focus on the job you do have as sporting director. There's there's nothing sort of particularly egregious about that. Uh, but he is obviously refining it, and I think what Vasseur is trying to do, good power with Toto Wolf, and you know from what he did at Alfa Romeo and or Sauber and Junior Academy is, is I think he'll be better at nailing what the true working practice of a no-blame culture is because Bonotto I think his understanding of a no-blame culture was slightly politely lost in translation where no one was at fault for anything Ferrari never made a mistake you think of how he defended the strategy after Monaco or Silverstone last year whereas actually a no-blame culture is is you know going it's not X person's fault specifically. So, you know, as, as Mark covers in his Williams piece, so, so you don't have that culture of covering your own tracks rather than focusing on optimising and, and, and moving forward. So if, if Vasseur brings that in, that'll be a step forward. But, you know, losing David Sanchez, head of vehicle concept, and Bonotto, who obviously had the split role of team principal and technical director... Although Sanchez has gone straight to McLaren, in a world of Formula One gardening leaves, that is now a very depleted technical side. You know, it's it's about as poor shape in effect as Williams, where where they've got their chief designer acting as a interim technical director, and it's so depleted. And obviously, uh, that gets to a certain point where the upgrades that the SF23 now needs, both drivers said uh, have come out and said it's not a case of setup tweaks; it's more fundamental packages. Those and obviously the 2024 car are all heavily steered by the technical director, so they need to appoint someone in that place ASAP. And so either they've got to promote from within or wait for these gardening periods of gardening leave to be served. So that's that's where it seems most turbulent at Ferrari. But Vasseur is not raising too many eyebrows by sort of chopping and changing. I think he needs to. If he said, you know, absolute stability and there's more bad strategy, more unreliability, he's done nothing about it, then he's he's out the door, you know, basically before he's even settled in the job. But I'd say the bigger concern is what way round has he fallen out with the CEO? Because that if that if Vasseur was his man, their chosen one, and that relationship is already south, then that is really interesting. Regime change is always a complicated thing, isn't it, Mark? When when you're the appointee of someone who's left and a new top dog comes in, they want to stack the deck 
uh, with with their own people. And you know, we we saw that very much the case when Zach Brown came in at McLaren, didn't we? He replaced an awful lot of people. Uh, he, even his head of PR got given the Spanish Archer rapidly enough in favour of uh, someone who'd uh, worked, Zach had worked with before. When you take a step back from all of this, um, you know the McLaren announcement made today, and then the, the Ferrari debacle, as it appears to be at the moment. What you're seeing is two teams who really could really need to do something other than be focusing on infighting and restructuring. They need to get themselves sorted out because, quite frankly, the more you get involved in internal restructures, changes, upsets, uh, all the human issues around that, which inevitably take a time to settle. All you're doing is handing an opportunity to teams who don't have that going on, teams like Red Bull Racing, teams actually like Mercedes-Benz. You know, Mercedes, for all their troubles, at least have, as far as we know, a very unified team, which at least accepts that it's got a, a problem with the design philosophy in its car. They're digging quite deep to try and find a way forward to being incredibly open and transparent about the problems that they're having. You know, that's all really quite positive, a positive set of behaviours. Whereas, I mean, if you look at the McLaren announcement, James Key is someone who I have a huge amount of time for. I was very fortunate enough to work with him way back at Jordan Grand Prix when he was there. Uh, he's gone on to, you know, achieve a lot in his career. You know, not to put too fine a point on it, that the pre McLaren press release very much reads like it's James's fault that we're that we're in the in the problem that we're we're in at the moment, and uh, and so he's left a team with immediate effect. I mean, that's the only thing that you can you can say about that, and that's a shame because that means that there's effectively there's they're looking for a blame to be apportioned, and the blame is not being apportioned across the organisation. It's not. The failure to failure to succeed is not seen as an organisational failure. It's being sort of firmly planted at one person's door. And when you consider that, you know, McLaren have seen Andreas Seidel leave. That now, you know, James Key has now gone. So this all looks, you know, like a period of instability. And instead of having a, a single technical director announced, they've announced that they're going to have a triumvirate uh, approach with. Peter Prodromo appointed as technical director at Aerodynamics. David Sanchez, as you mentioned, technical director for Car Concept. And then Neil Huldy is uh, being promoted to the newly created role, they say, of technical director engineering and design. So you've got three technical directors, all responsible for different areas. Uh, that, for me, always rings an alarm bell because, again, when you look at successful team models over the year that you know once you go down the, the kind of committee route you kind of wonder where does the buck stop who takes overall responsibility who's the person who's really ultimately going to call the shots in terms of the overall direction of the package the car the design the development etc so that's really the mclaren thing is really it's it's interesting to see and of course here we are recording this podcast after the second race of the 2023 season and we're seeing you know huge change taking place already and then when you look at the ferrari situation i mean i'm i'm actually aghast at what's happening there because the last thing that frederick vasseur needed when he went into ferrari was to to then preside over um a further period of change and instability. You know, the loss of David Sanchez, is the, the rumours surrounding, uh, 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 surrounding uh, Mekis, you know, is, is he going to stay, is he leaving? Um, and then you come to this whole point around his relationship with Benedetto Vigna, the chief executive of Ferrari. And I think, again, for listeners, it's really important to, to remember, you know, uh, Benedetto is the chief executive officer of the of Ferrari. You know, he's got the top job in Ferrari. So for him, whatever else, you know, people may speculate, the reality, he's got the top job at Ferrari. And I mean, I read some of the comments that he made around the time of the Italian Grand Prix last year. He had only been in that role for just over a year. He was clearly unhappy with Ferrari's performance obviously he's now you know seen Benotto 
go, and I'm sure Vina had a, a role in that. And then you've seen the arrival of Sur, and if they are kind of headbutting each other, if there's if there is tension between them. That is enormously problematic for Vasseur, you know, to Matt's point, you know, this is this is kind of the last, it's the last thing that the team needs. And indeed, if it was to, if you were to think about it from a Charles Leclerc perspective, you know, think about the drivers, that that driver lineup that Andrew Benson has, has talked about in his article in the magazine, um, you know, the one thing the two drivers need is to feel that they're in a team that's got a, got a united aligned team leadership strong focus strategy direction resources been allocated in the right area to make the car go faster to improve those operational issues to solve those reliability problems and instead of that here we are after race two of the season they're fourth in the constructors championship um you know leclerc started a race with a you know penalty as a result of all those uh, issues with the engine electronics in in the opening uh, race, and it just looks like a little bit of chaos. And you know, I was reflecting on when I was reading some of the stories online. You know, so Vinya, the chief executive, his background is he was a physicist, and um, he actually invented the sensor that's used in airbags uh, in car crashes. And I kind of thought that's quite interesting because I mean he's. He may be presiding over the ultimate car crash at Ferrari at the moment, and uh, <laughs> they could they could do with a few airbags to protect, um, you know, Vasseur and, and the other people there. Because for me, the thing that will be catastrophic is if it turns out that Vigna and Vasseur have a an inability to work together, and it leads to further change. Because if that further change happens, uh, you'd have to say Ferrari has gone further down the the path towards once again self-destruction instead of building on all the good work that had been achieved and I mean whatever anyone thinks about last season they had a very very fast car um, yes they had operational problems yes they had reliability problems yes they had strategy problems all those potentially could be fixed if a team is aligned and pulling in the same direction and again to Matt's point um, understanding what no blame culture means. No blame culture doesn't mean you say, oh, well, that was another weekend where we screwed up. Let's not worry about it. Blame culture is where you actually learn, sit down and say, okay, so what went wrong in that pit stop? Why did we not get the strategy right in Monaco or Spa or wherever? Uh, and you learn from it and you say, to, you, you collectively decide next weekend, we will not repeat that or any time in the future. And you go on this upward trajectory. And I think maybe that exactly to Matt's point, I think that's where, you know, the well-intentioned Benotto approach ultimately didn't pay dividends. Um, and and here we are. I mean, I, you'd love to be able to phone up Benotto and say, so what do you reckon about everything that's happened since you left? I mean, it's it's a conveyor belt of misery um, and Ferrari need to somehow find a different track. It, it seems to me that uh, you know, Vigna, as as Roberto alludes, spent his first year in position very much focusing on the, the the road car side, and has been taking an increasing interest in the team over the past year. And maybe do we do we think he might be perhaps overextending? his bailiwick as it were because there, there's even talk that he he decides who gets a pass to come into the paddock you see it's, it's interesting you ask this because i so i need to you know say on the record i don't know laurent rossi um but i have you know, obviously written it i think i wrote a feature for the magazine last year about alpine uh, i know otmar safnauer um quite well and, you know, one of the things that I think is always a warning sign is when the chief executive of a car company starts to think that they're running the Formula One team. Because let's be clear, they know nothing about Formula One. And it is a totally, totally different business from the business of running a car company. And in, in, in ways that no one can even imagine, you know, that I always remember Richard Driscoll, the chief financial officer at Jordan Grand Prix, when I worked was on the management board there. I remember Richard saying one day, 
Formula One is a business like no other. There's no business in the world that prepares you for what you have to do to be successful in Formula One because the rule book gets thrown out the window. If you want to win in Formula One, you have to do things in a completely different manner from most normal companies. Most normal companies work on three to five year strategies. You know, Formula One teams have to learn how to react on a, a lap by lap, minute by minute, day by day, week by week, month by what the month by month basis. The agility you need to drive success in Formula One is of a totally different magnitude from anything else, including running a car company. So to your point, you know, Vigna has been in the role, we think he joined in June 2021. If he's been in the role of chief executive for Ferrari, obviously he's going to be fascinated by the F1 team. Who wouldn't be? If you were chief executive for Ferrari, you'd want to have the, the grid passed around your neck and be, you know, getting involved in, in, in whatever you could. But the reality is he has no experience of of Formula One, of running a, a Formula One team. And it is totally a different game from anything else that he will have done in his career. And quite honestly, Frederick Vasseur is a diehard racer with a huge amount of operational experience of running racing teams. He will have relished this opportunity to get into Ferrari. And if he's got into Ferrari only to find that he has a boss who is, whatever his intentions, is effectively undermining his position, that's going to be completely destructive. The two of them, if, if it's true that there's conflict there or tension, they really need to sort it out in quick order because, you know, disappointment from Charles Leclerc in, in, in what's happening during race weekends would be nothing compared to Ferrari just has another season dissolve away with internal tensions and friction. Because let's be clear, Leclerc's career is washing away before his eyes. And he won't want to stay there. And there are, I mean, we talked about Audi earlier on, for example, there's not going to be a shortage of teams who'd want to have Charles Leclerc in the near future. And uh, it's going to be, it's, it's vital that Ferrari get their, get their act together in terms of that alignment that they need amongst all the people in the team and get a sense of, get a sense of clear direction and, and deliver and focus on beating the competition rather than the internal struggles that seem to take up too much of their time. Roberto and Andrew both agree one of the major things that needs to be sorted out this year is tying Leclerc in and giving him a reason to stay. Yeah, well, first of all, was, oh, I remember when he first signed that contract, long-term thing, and now, and now by the end of this year, he'll be effectively deciding his future, won't he, if it expires at the end of 2024. And... There's no denying. I don't think it's quite like Max Verstappen ignoring Red Bull team orders in Brazil and not getting so much as a slap on the wrist. But Leclerc is obviously the talisman at Ferrari to the point where Vasseur was hired basically to placate to placate uh, Leclerc in many ways after his frustration and breakdown of his relationship with Bonotto. So the fact that they are appealing to to Leclerc shows how important he is uh, to to Ferrari but I wrote a column about this for Autosport last year it sort of shot down a bit but my colleagues but you do wonder not necessarily where he'll end up but is he going is he having a two-year version of Lewis Hamilton's 2012 at McLaren where there are these flashes of immense pace you know particularly what he had last year but just the the gearbox problems that you know Hamilton had or 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 the 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 poorly executed race strategy, the, the fragility, and it just thinks I, I've had enough. Like he's he's done the he's done the Ferrari thing now. You know he had his rookie season at Alfa Romeo, but he he's done the Ferrari thing. So whether his appetite is whetted to to look beyond, because if he is to like last season, what the best statistic from last season was that Max Verstappen won more races from Charles Leclerc poles than Charles Leclerc won from Charles Leclerc poles, and that sort of poor conversion rate is enough to make you to make you shop around and whether it is that you know Hamilton retires and and Mercedes goes to Leclerc or Mercedes goes to Norris and though so a resurgent McLaren needs uh, a, a star signing alongside Piastri or or the Audi program which will you know if the cost cap hasn't clamped down on driver salaries then it will be able to effectively write a blank check blank check for Leclerc he doesn't have a shortage of options I think you know both parties McLaren and Leclerc would dearly love it 
to work out with one any one another because they would be you know Leclerc would become well not a cult hero that makes him sound a bit like John Lacey but he he'd be like almost a, a deity around around that place but the trajectory it's on at the minute is uh, uh, to just underline everything Marcus said it's it's not going that way. The Alacy comparison is a good one because he's another person who is seen very much as the heir to Gilles Villeneuve, as Leclerc is. But Matt, have you have you got Christopher Hilton's John Alacy book? I do, I do. I'm a terrible for if if my uh, if my girlfriend's uh, going to let's say shop for my birthday present or something like that. I'll I'll nip into Oxfam and and go through go through every every shelf and uh, find out such gems. Christopher Hilton, a lovely and much missed bloke. He used to. Uh, you know, Right in his dressing gown for much of the day before having a before having a bath and going out to get the papers and things like that. It's a very very uh, eccentric but um, very enthusiastic, lovely bloke. Thanks for bringing back the memory. I, I very had a very great and boozy lunch with Christopher Hilton once and he wanted to stay for more I said Chris I've got to work you need to go to the archive I've got to work uh, anyhow magazine deadlines being what they are when Mark was writing his feature about Williams for this issue and the changes and what the new team, team principal James Vowles needs to do to turn things around James had only just started in the job with the benefit of observing for a couple of Grand Prix weekends I mean what, what do we make of him now I've, I've been quietly impressed by James Vowles and as you were saying earlier Mark about people who know what they're doing in motor racing here's a guy who has had he may not be an experienced team principal but he's worked next to one he's worked for one he's executed strategy he's he's managed a, a process that requires minute attention to detail multitasking the calculation of possibilities in real time so he's clearly got a big brain and you can see all that going on when he's being interviewed you know there's you know there's an awful lot of wheels turning in that head and i've i've been quietly impressed with what i've seen so far you couldn't wish to have a better university for becoming team principal than what he's been able to enjoy and contribute to but during his 20 plus years in Brackley, um, you know, as I mentioned, you know, in the feature that that period of time that he's been there, um, he has seen Brackley evolve from its uh, BAR through its Honda, through its Braun, through its Mercedes Benz uh, phase, which means he's worked with your Total Wolves and your James Allisons and your Ross Brawns and he's experienced working with uh, Dave Richards and so he's seen he's seen leadership in, in quite different styles but the one thing that you know Dave Richards and Ross Braun and Total Wolf all have in common is that they've been very good at what they very good at what they do from a, a leadership perspective so in, in motorsport so he's he's had a, an extremely good apprenticeship if you can call it that to become a team principal as you say he's got a good brain incredibly good what he at, at the at the specific jobs that he had uh, within those teams and then the broader roles and I, I think one of the things i find interesting when i talk to you know very senior engineers now in formula one if you talk to technical directors you talk to senior engineers you realize that actually the bit that kind of gets forgotten is that given the complexity of modern F1, if you end up in a senior technical role, you're effectively leading a group of people. You're in the team building role. So you're in the role of inspiring people, motivating people, uh, allocating resources, making sure you get getting the best possible outcome. So therefore, not only is someone like uh, James Bell's technically capable but they're also very capable as leaders because they're leading teams of people now may not be the size of an entire f1 team may just be a department or a function within that team but once you've acquired those soft skills in terms of communicating with people leading people inspiring people you can scale that and clearly in taking the williams opportunity he's able to unleash that leadership potential that you know is there within him to run an entire operation and clearly clearly Doralton, you know the owners of williams have met with him found him to be you know someone who inspires confidence and because of his demeanor the way he comes across that vast experience that he brings with him 
and therefore it seems like an extremely good move. Um, it's a fact that he has never run a Formula One team and therefore this is a step which is huge. Whatever function or role that you've had before, that final step into leadership of an F1 team means that you suddenly have new dimensions to your role that you've never had to really worry too much about before. Obviously a huge amount of media attention on you as a team principal. You're effectively in a chief executive type role. You are having to deal with the commercial partners of the team. There will be demand on your time from them. You're going to have to get, and of course, com the commercial side of Williams has been one of its fundamental weaknesses over the year. There's never been the funding, the third party commercial funding and sponsorship in the team for some years that's enabled it to, to invest the, the money in its facilities, etc. So the commercial side of the team is a weakness and it's one that he will have to have to pay attention to. And then all the other stakeholder audiences, you know, Formula One, the FIA, um, all of the other, you know, dealing with drivers, dealing with uh, contracts, dealing with personnel, senior personnel uh, issues and changes. As Matt, Matt mentioned, you know, you've got, you know, when a team is in transition, as Williams is, where they need to appoint senior roles, they need to structure that organisation. As James said, says in the, in the piece, you know, he talks about the fact that they're, they're kind of making do at the moment. They're kind of trying to fill gaps where they can. So it's it's very much all hands on deck trying to keep Williams going going along this year whilst he puts in place a stru structure for the long term. So it's it's an interesting, a very interesting challenge, one that unfortunately for James is going to be played out in the full, you know, public scrutiny that we will give to it in every every weekend, everything he says, all the press conferences that he takes part in, and of course the results of the team. But as I also mentioned in the feature, you know, the, of course one of, one of the, the, the points which is quite interesting is that this year's Williams car was effectively conceived under the leadership of the two people who are no longer in the team. So, you know, FX de Maison and Jos Capito. And I mean, again, I watched at the weekend, you know, the last last race, second race of the season, kind of watching Williams's performance and watching it relative to Alpha Tori and McLaren, and I'm thinking, yeah, it's, a, it's just a really it's really interesting time to watch, and I'm sure James will be very aware that you know the car that they've got this year's really been been conceived in, in the era before he joined the team and and obviously there's there's a lot of good to be taken from that because it means that there's been a lot of people in the team working hard to improve their performance into this year and hopefully he can build on that but you know in the final analysis very early days for him I think my big point would be that just as we talked about Ferrari Frederick Vasseur Benedetto Vigna What's completely critical for James Valls is that he really genuinely does get given the time and the support necessary to do the job that needs to be done at Williams. And that's not going to be counted in races or months, but in years. And again, realistically, with just three years to go before the advent of the huge regulation change that takes place in 2026, for me, that's where they need to be focusing. They need to be saying, what do we need to do in 2023, 2024 and 2025 to put in place the building blocks to ensure that Williams is a competently competitive midfield team in the new era of Formula One in 2026. And those three years are going to fly by. You know, all the novelty of his new role this year will just disappear in the blink of an eye. Before you know it, he'll be into 2024 and he'll be thinking about the fact that in 18 months' time, they've got to have a 2026 car uh, ready on the block. So it's for me, again, once again, all about stability, alignment, getting that coherent structure in place and him being given the time by the shareholders to do the job that unquestionably I think he's capable of. I uh, I have to say, Mark, you talking about uh, this year's car. I loved I loved that piece in your feature where you just note that uh, 
Capito uh, just put on LinkedIn after they got points in Australia that uh, he wanted to credit all his team who had been involved with the uh, FW45. I, I, I like that. It's fasc- fascinating insight. And I do wonder if that car's a bit too competitive. It sort of gives Williams a problem because Vowles came out early on and said, you know, we, we probably won't really develop this car. You know, we, we expect this season to be right off about the you know greater good long-term plan. And the fact it is a, a it's so far showing it can be a, a contender for, for points every so often that whether it is worth developing it and and therefore scoring more points, more prize money, better places in the Constructors Championship, especially when uh, Alfa Torre are doing so sort of dismally, uh, or so, so dismal at the minute and then, you know, more sponsors uh, as a result of that. But of course, it's, that's an even more difficult decision to make because they don't have a technical director who can lead that decision or go, no, we're going to pile everything into into next season. But on Val specifically, it's been really interesting to watch how he conducts himself and how considered he is. So, you know, what's one example is uh, in Australia, he was asked and uh, about, you know, how he's finding life at Williams. And he said he was very clear that Mercedes hasn't given me a full picture. It's not sort of stamped out a ready-made team principle. I'm, I'm having to learn. And as part of an extension of that, when he was given that position, I think we all assumed straight away that he would be a political ally for Toto Wolf come what may. And that may still well be the case with all the commission votes that go on behind closed doors. But just watching how he conducts himself in, in press conferences or, or out and about is he's trying to avoid, I think, quietly that Toto Wolf comparison in the sense that um, they were asked a couple of joint questions in uh, Saudi Arabia and, and Toto Wolf was trying to bring Vowles in and engage and sort of have a have a joke about, oh, I can't believe we let you go, that sort of thing. And, and Vowles didn't really entertain it. I think he, you know, he's trying to just establish that I want to be, I want to be held in my own right, thank you very much. Not, not a slight on Toto Wolf or not, not throwing shade at him, as the kids would say, but just <laughs> wanting to be held in his own right and I thought that was really interesting and obviously as Mark says what we're saying now is, is not Vowles' responsibility even down to the signing of, of Logan Sargent he actually said when when Mercedes were looking at him we thought no thanks and now he's managing him and that was obviously a Capito decision to, to get rid of Latifi ultimately and, and hire in Sargent and that's where I want to sort of throw to, to link some of this podcast together throw to um, the uh, Benedetto Vigna comparison which is that Ferrari, the road car company, is in great shape at the minute. It's it's got you know the the two nine six, the darling of all the automotive journalists. It's just launched the Puro Sangue um, SUV, which are all great success stories, but none of them were conceived by him. But he can lap up the credit in the same way that what we're seeing now is not a manifestation of any of Vowes' decisions. And apart from sort of observing how the race team operates, I bet he would love it to be 2025, 2026, so that all the things he's identified are, 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 in, are in sort of motion and, and he can take credit for that. So it, it has been it has been good to watch him. He's been, like I say, a bit reserved, but in a good way and, and considered and just gone about things sort of in the right way. And the fact he's saying that Everything in the job interview did align with the Doralton Capital Board suggest that this is a, a longer term appointment and they are going to be patient. And the other thing that really struck me in terms of tone from Saudi Arabia is that Franz Toss threw this brilliant sort of grenade in at his team saying, I don't trust my engineers anymore. The numbers are doing one thing, our car's rubbish. Vowles has gone the opposite of that. He's going, I wasn't here. I've been at an eight-time Constructors' Championship, so I don't know what you guys are going through, but I can feel that this team has endured a lot of pain, you know, and I feel for the guys here. And what, and just that completely different mentality of, uh, instead of Toss slamming up his team while they're down, Vowles is going, you know, I'm here, guys. I'm, I'm you know, I'm going to, you're bruised. I can sense that, but we're together. We can pick ourselves back up. And just that, that difference in approach is, uh, is, just something well worth noting. Yes. Was it Tottenham Hotspurs manager who's been doing something yes. similar recently? I know Conte, nothing about yes. football, but our, uh, uh, our our vice president of editorial, Mr. Dickens, is a, is a fan and seems to spend most of his Twitter time tweeting about uh, what an egregious oaf this this manager is. It, it's, it's, it's not really what you want, is it, for the manager to wade in and say, I'm doing a great job, but you are all idiots. I think the passing of Dietrich Mateschitz, owner of Red Bull, was always going to be a significant moment. And although Red Bull as an organization has stabilized the 
the ship and they've got a management clear management structure in place. Uh, I'm talking about the Red Bull Energy Drinks Company and the way in which Formula One and all their other sporting activities fit under that. It feels like change is inevitable and you wonder how long that change is going to take to take, you know, when will that take place? How will it manifest itself? We've already seen stories around Helmut Marko's position within, in terms of his relationship with the new leadership at Red Bull. You have to wonder about Franz Tosk, because Franz is very much part of that, if you, if you kind of old school setup that they put in place at, at Red Bull. And I suspect that he's being frustrated, you know, and, and of course, it's one thing being frustrated when you report to the person who maybe you've had an incredibly long-standing, strong relationship. If you now are frustrated but reporting to someone who actually just wants results and is perhaps questioning, you know, why have we got two Formula One teams? There have already been stories about AlphaTauri being up for sale and then that was dismissed. Well, of course I'd dismiss it because you were never going to say, well, you know, it's all up for sale. But you'd have to say everything's going to be on the cards. And I think one of the interesting stories over the course of, again, this year and next is going to be how that whole Red Bull structure evolves. And when I read Franz's comments, I know Franz Tost from way back when he was managing Ralph Schumacher. It, it's unusual to get that kind of an outburst because Franz would know that that's not going to help anybody. Uh, by being by being publicly uh, critical of your team, I mean that doesn't make for a a happy a happy team. So I kind of wonder about the frustrations in there. So that that's going to be a story worth keeping an eye on over the next couple of years as as we leave the Matishits era of Red Bull behind us and move into this new era of professional leadership who uh, will unquestionably look at everything that they do in sport quite differently, uh, including Formula One. Yeah, people like to carve out roles for themselves when uh, great leaders pass, don't they? So there's always a period of squabbling in in the aftermath. Armando Inucci did a very good film about all of that. <laughs> he did indeed, The Death of Stalin. Uh, speaking of satire, the sort of entrenched belief that James Vowles was going to be some sort of puppet of Toto Wolff on the political front made me think... and and. Readers of a certain age will get this. Or certain readers, listeners, even of a certain age, will uh, recall this very well. The the spitting image, the satirical puppet program, used to portray the two leaders of the Liberal Democrat Party, uh, David Owen, as a full size puppet with his co leader David Steele, a sort of like a, a pocket sized puppet that would fit in in his sort of top uh, top pocket and go oh david yes i agree with you and i i get the feeling that various people thought the the james vowels toto wolf relationship would work a little bit like that it's interesting to see maybe that's not how it's going to go and uh, as you say at the end of your feature mark i hope i'm not doing any spoilers when i give away the payoff when he says you know the other team principals have been quite supportive of me so far this may not last for long you know, he's he's someone who's he has his own plans of how he's going to carve out his regime. The last thing you would want when you come out from your twenty years at Brackley is to effectively have your former boss kind of metaphorically patting you on the head, saying, "Oh well, yes, he's going to do a fine job there." This is a bitter competition in Formula One. You know, you, you, James Bales is not taking on the leadership role of Formula One to be a patsy to. Anybody, yes, of course, he's got a strong relationship with Total Wolf, and I'm sure that's not going to change. And yes, of course, the relationship between Williams and Mercedes is extremely important because of their their powertrain suppliers. So that's going to continue. But in the same way, is it's essential that Doralton give James the space and the time to do his job. It's also really important he makes it his own and stamps his authority on that. And that includes going into head-to-head competition with his former team. Otherwise, there's no point in doing it. Speaking of space and time, we've we've run up against our sort of hour limit. Once once Martin's deleted all the naughty stuff that uh, is is absolutely unbroadcastable. So it is time to say thank you very much to my guests. Uh, Mark Gallagher, probably about bedtime for you, really, isn't it? (laughs) 
Yeah, it's about bedtime for me and, and tomorrow I'm going down for the first day of the Adelaide Motorsport Festival and look forward to uh, having a bit of a chat with Valtteri Bottas on uh, Sunday afternoon, hopefully clothed. That's both him and me. <laughs> That's both him and me when we do it. But I'm uh, looking forward very much to uh, to that and then heading over to Melbourne for the Grand Prix. And Matt, thank you very much. Uh, are you going to? Are you on, on deck in Australia, or have you got this one off? Uh, I'm not on deck in Australia, but my immediate plans involve uh, writing a feature for you that's due in uh, about twelve hours from now. <laughs> uh, yes, it very much is. So uh, you know, in the grand tradition of great leadership, I'm going to say, work harder, you mangy dog. Can, uh, can I say, Connors, I'm heeding your advice. It is of course written, but I'm taking some time between writing and filing to. Uh, fully appreciate whether well, there's any edits I may want to make this is very good you have to sort of do do the whole the, the whole swoosh thing imagine imagine that you hadn't written it and you're reading it cold and uh, so it's what I did with the thing I submitted yesterday morning before I submitted it to myself anyway uh, thanks to all our listeners thanks to the long-suffering Martin Lee our producer uh, for more fabulous uh uh, content, as we must call these things nowadays, you can buy our magazine. It comes out every month. Go to gpracing.com to find out our subscriber offers. You can find out your nearest stockist if you live in the UK by going to Seymour. That's as in the lady who played solitaire in the James Bond films. Seymour.co.uk. Type your... And it is actually working because I checked it before I hit record. It's working again. The store finder will now accept your postcode and you will find out which shops stock GP racing. Uh, Thank you very much. We will speak to you again next month. Enjoy the next couple of Grand Prix. Sports Social Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Jumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Jumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.